there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. There's no way that I could speak if I knew everybody in this room as well as God does. I could not speak to your needs, could I? But I don't know you, I don't know your needs, but God does. How do you respond? That's the question. Will you accept what God has appointed, and your circumstances are appointed by God, remember that, it is in that place that God wants to reveal himself, so you must accept them. Now, we can spend our lives complaining about what we haven't got or thanking God for what we have got. Which kind are you? I think we can divide the whole world into two categories, complainers and thankers. I came across a word in, the, in a dictionary, one of those times when I opened the page, you know, to find one word, and I have to read 50 others before I can shut the book. I found this wonderful word, humdudgeon. I've never heard anybody use it before, but it means a loud complaint about a trifle. And I talked to my grandchildren about humdudgeons. But it's not just my grandchildren that are guilty. I am very guilty of making many loud complaints about trifles. I need to learn to accept and the word is not going to do anything for us, as this verse says, what they heard was of no value to them because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. You've got to combine with faith, with trust in God, what you've heard. That's the only way that it's going to make a difference. It is not the events of our lives that change us. It is our response. We've all known people who have gone through horrible experiences and turned against God, which means that they turn against the whole world. They become bitter, resentful, unapproachable people. We had one in our church. She was like a tigress in a corner, just all claws, if anybody came at her with anything at all, she just lashed out at him. I don't know what she was angry about, but she was one of the angriest people I ever knew. Well, obviously, she was angry at God, first of all. We also know people, and of course, I always thought, this poor woman, she probably went through some ter terrible experience, whatever it was. But we all know people who have been through equally terrible experiences, maybe worse, and they have turned into pure gold. Now, what makes the difference? How many of you ever saw or heard or saw on the screen Corey Ten Boom? Quite a few of you. One thing that was just obvious in that woman was joy. In fact, when Jeanette Cliff George played Corey's part in the movie The Hiding Place, Billy Graham asked her, what characteristics stood out most for you when you studied the character of Corey Ten Boom, and Jeanette said, joy. Now, where did that joy come from? Did it come because all the circumstances of her life were lovely? 
She was in a concentration camp where her father died and her sister was starved to death. It's response. Lord, I accept this. I don't understand it. I wouldn't choose it. I don't like it. It's evil. There certainly was lots of real evil. That's what it was, wasn't it? Just evil, day after day. God puts us in this world. He said when he prayed to his Father in John 17, I do not pray that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from evil. And that's what I pray for my grandchildren. Keep them from the powers of evil, from the secret hidden peril, from the whirlpool that would suck them, from the treacherous quicksand pluck them. Amy Carmichael again. Accept it. Yes, the evil too. That doesn't mean we're not supposed to change it if it's changeable and if we can change it. There are situations which God wants us to do something about and there are others that we can't do anything about. And somebody was talking to me this morning about changing her husband. It's not going to work. When we set out to change our husbands, what we're going to do is change our marriage. It's going to be miserable. And the more we try to change those husbands, the more we're going to make ourselves and our husbands miserable. My second husband, Ad Leach, had a wonderful sense of humor. He was a wonderful, outgoing, cheerful, joke-telling kind of man. And I know right now some of you are thinking, poor Lars, he's back there having to listen about Jim Elliott and Ad Leach. How does he stand it? Well, he stands it with great good humor. In fact, he often tells me, be sure to tell a story about Ad. He gets left out. <clears throat> That's my husband. I married three husbands that all have a great sense of humor. And one of the things Ad used to say was, if a woman is very generous, she may concede that her husband lives up to about 80% of her expectations. Would you concede that, that your husband lives up to maybe about 80% of your expectations? And you know your expectations were ridiculously high, weren't they? That prize package you got is a surprise package. <laughs> And um, Ad would say, what are you going to do about the other 20%? Are you going to pick away at it for the rest of your married life? You can do that, and you will not reduce it by very much, but what you will accomplish is to make yourself and your husband miserable. What's the other choice? Point three, acceptance. I hope you've already written that down. Acceptance. You can accept what you got. You may look across this, the fence, you know, where the grass looks greener, and you think, oh, her husband, he's so sweet, he's so thoughtful. He just, it must be wonderful to live with a man like that. You don't know his set of sins. She does. If God had given you a choice of this set of sins or that set of sins, how in the world would you have known what to take? You see, God gave you the man that is exactly what you need. Oh, yes, he did. <laughs> and some of you are thinking, yeah, but I wasn't even a Christian when, when we got married, or my husband isn't a Christian, or I wasn't even thinking about asking for the will of God. I don't think it was the will of God. I made a terrible mistake back there. If you are married to this man today, this is the will of God. He doesn't want you to get out of it. Thank you for that, amen. 
And it is within the terms of your husband's limitations and your limitations and the limitations that you impose on each other and the ways in which you annoy each other that God wants to say, fix your eyes on me. I know how to sort this out. I'm the one that can change that man, not you. And you know, I don't even tell God how I think Lars needs to be changed anymore. I used to. I had a list of things that I thought God ought to do. And it was just as if God was saying, would you just leave that to me? I know what needs to be changed, if anything. You're the one I want to change. You're the one I'm working on. Fix your eyes on me. Listen to me. And do what I say. And one of the things the Lord is having to say to me is keep your mouth shut. Back off. Now, do you think that comes to me naturally? <laughs> Could you imagine that it's natural for me to be gentle and meek and quiet? No way. Absolutely no way. If there's any meekness or any gentleness or any peacefulness in me, it comes from up there. It does not come from my personality, my temperament, my personal efforts. Okay, verse 14 in chapter 4. This is a hop, skip, and a jump, but when I got into these chapters, I just thought this is exactly what I need for all three of these talks. So I'm going to stick with Hebrews. Therefore, there are a lot of these wonderful therefores be a great study. Just go through the book of Hebrews and circle the therefores. Since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we possess. Hold firmly. Accept and hold firmly. And this comes under the same heading. In order to hold firmly, I have to accept. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Think of who he is. Think of the honor that he offers to you and me on a platter. Will you trust me? Will you be my disciple? Will you walk with me? Will you do what I say? I'll give you joy, I promise. I've been through it. I can sympathize with every one of your weaknesses. My weakness of being such a big mouth and having such absolutely set in concrete opinions about everything. My husband Jim said, you're like, you've got a sledgehammer personality. <laughs> Ad said, you don't call a spade a spade, you call it a bloody shovel. <laughs> I'm waiting for Lars to come up with his assessment. But these are my weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. And you remember that when he was reviled, he reviled not again. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, 
he opened not his mouth. And Pilate said, do you realize the power I have over you and you're not answering me? And Jesus said nothing. He knew how to keep his mouth shut and he was undoubtedly tempted. And then verse 16 is our verse for this whole weekend. Let us then, or therefore, approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our marriage. Is that what it says? Well, if that happens to be your time of need or your place of need, that's where the grace will be. Whatever your time of need, whatever your place of need, the grace is sufficient. It's there. But we have to approach the throne of grace. We have to come to God in trust. What's the use of coming to him if we're real edgy and saying, well, I don't really know whether I want this or not. I don't know whether he's going to do something to me. You have to come boldly, approach the throne of grace with confidence, trust, so that we may receive. We cannot receive if we don't come, if we don't approach the throne of grace. Now, there's a note rarely heard under this heading of acceptance. I want to read to you from this old writer. Of nothing may we be more sure than this, that if we cannot sanctify our present lot, we could sanctify no other. Our heaven and our almighty Father are there or nowhere. The obstructions of that lot, our circumstances, are given for us to heave away by the concurrent touch of a Holy Spirit and labor of strenuous will. Its gloom for us to tint with some celestial light. Its mysteries are for our worship. Its sorrows for our trust. Its perils for our courage. Its temptations for our faith. Soldiers of the cross, it is not for us, but for our leader and our Lord to choose the field. It is ours taking the situation which he assigns to make it the field of truth and honor, though it be the field of death. Back to what Amy Carmichael said, if I make much of anything appointed, this field, this circumstance, this place, magnifying it secretly to myself or insidiously to others, then I know nothing of Calvary love. Let's not dramatize our troubles. There's a very great temptation to be thought of as very complicated, to think of our problem as being very complex and needing professional help when the chances are very good. Now, please don't go out of here saying I'm knocking professional counseling. But what I am saying is, have you brought it to the foot of the cross? Have you taken God's simple answer? Really? Truly? Have you banked on it? Have you laid the whole thing out before God and said, Lord, I'll do anything you say, even if you tell me to forget it, even if you tell me to shut my mouth and leave it to you, Lord, I'm going to do that. Have you tried that? So we don't hear much of that today, do we? There's not very much about the cross, and I want to point you to the cross. 
the old rugged cross so despised by the world has a wondrous attraction for me. For the dear Lamb of God left his glory above to bear it to dark Calvary. And the last thing, point four, and these are all things that we are to do with our loneliness. First is fix our thoughts on Jesus. Second, beware of a hard heart and of self-pity. Third, accept this loneliness. And number four, and this may seem very strange and preposterous to you, make an offering of your loneliness to God. Make it material for sacrifice. Now this is a tremendous and all-pervading concept in my life that I didn't really understand at all until my husband, Ad, was dying of cancer. I had been through Jim's death many years before. There were 14 years between Jim's death and my marriage to Ad. And in all those years of widowhood and loneliness, I had not learned this concept, which is so clearly taught in Scripture. I don't know how I missed it. And now when I read the Bible, I see it all through the Bible. And when I read the books that I had read 20 years ago, I see it all through those books. You know, we are fools and slow of heart to believe, as Jesus said to the disciples. But this concept of making an offering of literally everything... It's in that little prayer that I read for you last night. All that I am, all that I have, all that I do, and all that I suffer. Now, if you're suffering loneliness, think of that as material for sacrifice. When Jesus was about to feed the 5,000, they brought to him five loaves and two fishes. The most absurd inadequacy to cover the needs of that crowd. And do you remember what the disciple said, I think it was Andrew, he said just what you and I would say when we think of making the, an offering to God of our loneliness. He said, what is the good of that for such a crowd? But you know, it came to me during those horrible nights when Ad would be screaming with pain and I was taking care of him at home, and I felt as if I could not stand one more hour of this that God was saying to me, give it to me. Give it to me. Just give me his pain and your pain. Let me take it. But it has to be a willed act. It has to be a voluntary offering. And I began very slowly and very dimly to understand that this is exactly what God is asking of you and me every minute of the day. If I'm peeling an onion, it's for Jesus. If I'm ironing Lars's shirt, inasmuch as you've done it for one of the least of these, my brothers, you have done it for me. How would you iron that shirt if it really was Jesus? Well, it is. It really is Jesus. That's what he says. And so my loneliness, what is the good of that for such a crowd? Did the little boy who had to give up his lunch, and who knows whether it was extorted from him or whether he actually gave it willingly... <laughs> Did he have any idea what Jesus would do with that lunch? When the mother fixed that lunch before she sent the little boy out that day, 
Could she have imagined what would become of those five little rolls of bread and two little fish? The dis- even the disciples, they couldn't imagine. There was just the tiniest flicker of hope in their minds that, well, maybe God can do, maybe Jesus can do something with this. This is all we've got. It wasn't their business to figure out what God was going to do with that. And it is never your business to figure out what God is going to do with anything you offer him, whether it is your service, your gifts, your life, your marriage, your loneliness, your pain. What is the good of that if you gave him everything? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Leave it to me, he says. Well, what did he do? He fed a multitude. And then I remembered words that I'd heard way back in college, but somehow it didn't, it didn't click. I didn't understand the enormous implications. But I heard somebody say, if your life is broken when given to Jesus, it will be because pieces may feed a multitude when a loaf would satisfy only a little boy. Are you willing to be broken bread and poured out wine? Are you willing for that? Comes back to the question of, are you willing to follow Jesus Christ? He said, the bread that I will give is my body, and I give it for the life of the world. Can I follow him there? Will I accept the brokenness and the poured out sense of loss? The psalmist said, what shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits? And some of us have felt that just that way, just overwhelmed with the mercies of God, the blessings of our lives. What can I give you, Lord? It's very interesting the answer that the psalmist gives. He says, I will take the cup of salvation. Now, the cup of salvation doesn't just mean accepting the Lord Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior and getting a free ticket for heaven. It means this cup of this day, whatever is in God's cup of salvation for me includes what is in this day, in this marriage, in this place, in this hard thing. I will take this, Lord, That's what I can give you. The only thing I can give you, Lord, is to take what you're giving me, acceptance. What else can I offer? Well, I offer all that I am, all that I have, all that I do, all that I suffer. I can offer that. I can offer my pain. But it comes down again. I don't have anything to offer but what he gave me, do I? All things come of thee, O Lord, and of thine own have we given thee. And so I like you to think of a circle. Here's God up here just pouring out his blessings many of them unrecognizable to us as blessings. Here we are down here with open hands. Lord, I'll take it. And I will offer it back to you in thanksgiving. And so it goes back to God. And this is what is called in some churches the Eucharistic life, which simply means a life of thanksgiving. But you can't thank him until you've received it. And when I became a widow, I realized that God had given me a new gift. I was thrilled when he gave me the gift of marriage. I didn't want the gift of singleness, which I've had for most of my life. 
two-thirds of my life still have been single. But when God gave me the gift of marriage, I was thrilled. When he gave me the gift of widowhood, I didn't recognize it as a gift right away. I do now. I know that's what it was. And it's in that place that God wants me to glorify him, wherever you are. And so point number four, what do I do with my loneliness? I offer it to God. Perhaps a simple little physical gesture will help you as it helps me. Get somewhere by yourself, get down on your knees, put your loneliness in your hands, as it were. Just say, Lord, I can't handle this, but you can. I give it to you in the name of Jesus. I've had people ask me again and again, how did you handle loneliness when you were a widow? How did you handle the isolation when you lived in the jungle alone? My answer is, I can't handle it. I don't have any neat tricks. I can't handle it, so I give it to the one who can. I make an offering. And what else can I render unto the Lord as an offering, the sacrifice of acceptance? As the psalmist said, I will take the cup, the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name, and the sacrifice of this mortal body, aging as it is. It's the only one I've got. This 66-year-old body I offer as a sacrifice to Jesus. And again, referring to what I said last night, you can do that as a daily commitment. It's not just a life, a once-in-a-lifetime thing, but it needs to be validated, doesn't it? Day after day. And so the, there is this continuous receiving and continuous offering. Lars, can you tell me how many minutes I have left? Oh, okay. Okay. I, I want to close with the last half of St. Francis's prayer. Many of you know that prayer, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. But the last half is particularly appropriate to the things that I've been talking about. Teach me to seek not so much to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And we'll keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. <laughs>